0: Hello listeners, a friendly reminder that the companies and topics discussed on this podcast are general advice only. Please consult an advisor or accountant for any personal advice. Hello everyone, we are back for another episode of the Market Pulse podcast. So thank you very much for tuning in to episode 51. Now just a friendly reminder at the top of the show this time that you can email in any questions or topic ideas or things that you're not sure about that we talk about. You can do that to marketpulsepodcast at gmail.com We're going to jump around to a few different topics this week There's been some market news or some company news here in Australia that I'll touch on about a few different things Those include uh, some CEO changes at AMP uh, Some regulatory action uh, on behalf of APRA uh, regarding Macquarie Group We're going to touch base on where Airtask is sitting at the moment from the last time that we spoke about Airtasker since their IPO and there was also an acquisition by REA Group which is realestate.com.au which we'll touch on as well and I guess one of the bigger topics for this week's episode, we're going to actually talk about the property market which is a bit of a rarity for me here on this podcast. I don't normally actually speak about property or property investing ever So, but I, I kind of think you can't really ignore it at the moment given how crazy it's been as of late so we'll get into all the details on that towards the end of the podcast but i won't waste any more time out of your easter weekend thank you so much for tuning in like i said this is episode 51 you are listening to the market pulse podcast and this is the underquote edition Now I will give the weekly numbers for the markets. However, as you're probably aware, it was a short week because of Easter, because of the holidays. So the market was not actually open on Friday and further to that, the market is not gonna be open this coming Easter Monday. Now that's specific to Australia. So the US market was also closed for Friday, but they will actually be open on Monday, which is kind of like Tuesday, early Tuesday morning uh, for us. So the ASX 200 just, 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 just scraped it in for the week. It was up 0.10%. The S&P 500 was actually up 1.14% and the NASDAQ up 2.7%. Just as a bit of a reference point to where we are this year so far, considering that the first quarter of this calendar year is now over, which is actually pretty crazy to think about because, and maybe this is shared by everyone, but 2020 kind of flew by in its own weird, unique way. I guess considering how, Um, different the year was and now it's 2021 and we're already a quarter of the way through so I guess if you had any New Year's goals or habits to form you probably better start getting getting cracking on those ones anyway I'm not going to turn this podcast into a self-help chat sort your own life out but back on track the ASX200 is up 3.7% for the year so far and what I say year so far I mean, for the point the market closed on the 31st of December 2020 up until Thursday this week, it's up 3.7% from that point. The S&P 500 the year so far has actually done about double that. It's up 7.02% for the year. The NASDAQ 100 index not up as much, only 3.42%. And that would be because the tech stocks and just the NASDAQ index in general have had a little bit of a pullback since around mid-Feb compared to say the broader industry companies and stocks that are in the top or in the S&P 500 uh, because that's much more of a general index in terms of the various businesses and industries that make up that index compared to the NASDAQ which is very heavy tech and tech often moves in unison whereas the S&P 500 has definitely been helped by recovery in, Uh, company stocks in in industries like banks and the travel sector and consumer retail stocks that might have suffered especially over the last 12 months with COVID and we've seen that kind of similar pattern play out here in Australia but that's I guess a bit of why the S&P 500 has had a bit of a notably different year so far compared to the Nasdaq. So yes whilst the Australian market just scraped it in for the week the US markets had a a really good week. In fact, a very specific indicator was reached in regards to the S&P 500 and actually topped the 4,000 point mark for the very first time. And this is a market that's very much continuing to rally on the opening up of the American economy, helped by what probably should be noted as pretty well executed vaccine rollout, pretty speedy vaccine rollout across the country there. And the United States is one that a lot of analysts and experts are looking at in terms of just the probably the sheer economic numbers that they'll start to pump out between now and the end of 2021 because as that economy continues to open up people start to feel a little bit better about social events and travel um, due to the vaccine uh, getting uh, more and more prevalent their seasons are also moving out of colder months and moving into summer months um, so the holidays play a role there so I am I'm also curious to see the kind of GDP numbers that will be coming out from the US as well. So some domestic market news worth mentioning. AMP shares had a bounce right at the end of the week when it officially confirmed to the market that a new CEO will be stepping up to head up the company. Her name is Alexis George. She comes over to AMP from ANZ, where she was actually deputy CEO there. And this confirmation of change in the CEO for AMP. It came after a very weird seven days where the media broke the news about a week ago that their existing CEO, which his name's Francesco Di Ferrari, who he's been with them for a couple of years I think it was twenty eighteen when he came in. The the media broke the news that he was gone and he was getting replaced. And given that AMP is a publicly traded company, it has to disclose or answer to stuff like this. And so they went into a short trading halt. And then on the 25th of March, they released a statement and they said, AMP Limited notes the media reports today and confirms that uh, Di Ferrari remains as CEO of the group. Which you'll notice the wording doesn't definitively say that he isn't on the out, but that he remains as of the announcement, the CEO. And then what made it weirder is they then did another announcement the next day, March 26, and they titled it additional statement on CEO and they said, AMP confirms there's no change to the CEO's position, and Mr. Di Ferrari has not resigned. Uh, but then they went further, saying that the board and him are working together uh, constructively, discussing the future strategy and leadership of the group. So you kind of started to get a, a, a feeling that this was going to happen, and everyone at that point, especially given how confident the financial press generally was in that this was a done deal, th- yeah, people started to think that that's where exactly where it was heading. And then a few days later, on April 1st they released a final announcement which was not an April Fool's joke saying that uh, De Ferrari, in fact was retiring and the new CEO would be Alexis George from ANZ. So that's that. It's a very, I would say, a bold decision to step up to the helm of a company like that. I wish her all the luck. I It's not certainly not a job I would want to do. Now, elsewhere, as you stay on the banks, regulatory actions on banks which kind of caused a little small dip in the share price this week for Macquarie Group, and that's because of some actions that APRA announced. Now, these APRA announcements relate to prior circumstances back between 2018 and 2020, where Macquarie, this is according to APRA, did not calculate and report correct prudential ratios in relation to the expectation that APRA place on our banks for things like their operational capital ratios. Which are, which are part of measures designed to ensure that banks are sound in terms of the liquidity and the capital that they have, especially if they were to go through significant downturns, like, um, well, I guess last year is an example of that, uh, but similar to what we, might, we, we experienced during the GFC. Now, it's important to note that Macquarie themselves highlighted this in their response, is that these comments from APRA are not about the current status of the bank, and their current liquidity and capital positions it's just regards to a breach between 2018 and 2020 so the share price fell about 1.8% on the day that was announced and and acknowledged by Macquarie however given i mean given the relative strength of this bank and its prospects over the coming years i wouldn't be too concerned if i was a shareholder Macquarie group in terms of its share price has now recovered to its uh, pre-market crash position so the, the COVID market crash position, that is. And it's actually expected to be one of the better performers in the financial sector moving forward into the future. So I think if I'm holding this stock, which I'm not, but if I was, um, I wouldn't be too worried. Last week, we spoke about the crazy IPO that Airtasker had. Uh, it jumped ar- jumped around the 160 to 170% mark from its IPO price within just the first couple of days of it going live on the market. A very silly kind of jump, but if you suffer from a little bit of FOMO about all this, you'll be pleased to know that it has settled down a bit from those crazy highs, notably on Wednesday, the 24th of March, during the peak of the craziness right when it had just IPO'd, it was around the $1.75 per share mark. And this week, just before Good Friday, it closed at $1. sixteen. So it's certainly fallen back a little bit there. And this is probably a good hindsight lesson with IPOs Last week when I mentioned a bit of a personal rule in that I don't invest in IPOs, a large part of my reasoning is to, not the whole part, but a large part of the reasoning is to avoid potential hype around the stock because they do often settle down after the IPO. Not all the time, but but also, I mean, not all IPOs jump like 170% like Airtasker did. <laughs> That's a bit of a, an anomaly in that sense, but you can certainly see a fair bit of a ment- uh, momentum rather straight off the gun when a company goes live on the market but and then often what happens is it might settle down to somewhere closer to what its fair value is i suppose also waiting and being a little bit more patient can give you the chance to see further announcements and financial reports from these companies and understand you know is this a company that's making the right moves to continue growth into the future or was this just in a good spot when it IPO'd and maybe it's starting to struggle a bit now or the the growth prospects aren't looking as good as it, it did at this from day one. None of what I'm saying is specific to Airtasker. I'm just speaking very generally about IPOs. And again, it's not that these are potentially bad companies or something, but when brokers and banks pitch the IPOs, potentially sometimes they can be a bit rich on valuation and maybe it's often best to just let it settle a bit and even learn about it A little bit more as they start to report their numbers over the coming years. There's been a couple examples of this in the past 12 months. 2020 was big on this because it it was almost like a bit of a US phenomenon in terms of tech related stocks and tech valuations. But you start to see things here. So, Adore Beauty was one. They're an e commerce company, so, online beauty and cosmetic retailer. They IPO'd, well, their IPO was for $6.75 per share in 2020. Now they're trading now at about five dollars a share. That was one at the time where even if you weren't too familiar with the maybe not well, if you weren't too familiar with the business, you shouldn't have been investing in the IPO. But if you weren't too familiar with how to understand that IPO offer of six dollars seventy-five a share, there was quite a lot of commentary out there that this was a a fairly premium price to pay for this company. The the other one that comes to mind is U-Foods. So they're the ready-made meal provider that you can you find them in grocery stores or fuel stations. I like guess they're targeted for people that are perhaps time pool and and just need a meal for lunch or dinner or whatever. They IPO'd right at the end of 2020. And $1.50 was the price to pay per share to join in on that IPO. It's now trading at 62 cents per share. Now, this isn't a everything is negative about IPOs, so don't trust them and don't trust investing in these newer companies that come to market because there are also good news stories. Like one of the stocks we've talked about on this show is Aussie Broadband. Their IPO was for a dollar per share and they're now trading at $2.77, which is pretty amazing if you're an early investor. And maybe you're also a customer because Aussie Broadband actually offered their customers Directly the chance to get in on the IPO, which is actually pretty cool. I'm sure some of those customers who took it up knew that they were on to a little bit of a winner in terms of the product and the service. So very much well done if you're one of those people. But the point here is don't let FOMO control the decision making, especially when you watch something rocket like AirTasker IPO and it just takes off, and you don't want to miss out. One of the I think one of the hardest skills to learn in investing is just stopping yourself from pulling the trigger on something where where purely it becomes something that you just don't want to miss out on and that's the only reason you're going to pull the trigger on it because often that can sometimes be some of the worst times to invest. Finally, another bit of news that caught my eye, REA group, uh, probably the most notable part of REA group is realestate.com.au. They entered an agreement to completely acquire Mortgage Choice, the business Mortgage Choice, which is actually listed itself on the ASX. It's under the code MOC. Now, Mortgage Choice being a large mortgage broking company jumped about 62% in its share price on the takeover news. And that was because the announcement from REA Group in that they would acquire them said that it would be on a per share basis of $1.95 per share. And before that announcement went live on the market, the mortgage choice share price was about $1.18. So it instantly jumped up to pretty much that offer price from REA, which always happens. And it does kind of look like one of those situations where it will almost certainly go through, barring some kind of competing offer or unexpected shareholder vote as You know, the the market release by Mortgage Choice on this notes that the actual board of Mortgage Choice has unanimously recommended that their shareholders vote in favor of the scheme. So there doesn't seem to be any pushback from the board itself. For REA shareholders, this is very much part of the company's broader strategy over the past years to, instead of just being just a place to browse homes or properties that you might be looking at buying or maybe renting, being a bit more than that, so being a bit of a one-stop shop for those potential buyers to organize their finances and mortgages for the house that they're actually looking at on REA. REA shares are down a little bit year-to-date so far, a calendar year-to-date for clarity. They're trading at $142.58 per share. That's down from $154 per share at the start of 2021. But for context on what has been a, pretty great investment to own their share price is actually up 97% from the covid market bottoms in march 2020 and so 97% up from that point so about a year ago and up about 169% over the last 5 years and that that's purely just share price it's not including any dividend distribution that they've paid so it's been a been a pretty good investment to say the least and so you're i imagine you're likely as a shareholder to view this takeover as a good addition to the overall strategy of that business moving forward. All right, now the issue with being a bit of a short market week here in Australia is it kind of leaves not, not as much news to be discussed, at least what that's what I saw this week. And I suppose to be fair, regardless of how short a week is in terms of trading days, there might be some interesting company news, but I, I think this week as I scanned around Uh, There wasn't as much. So I thought it might be time and honestly for the first, I think it was the first time on this podcast as far as I can actually recall to chat about the Aussie property market and I must confess a little bit of a bias here in, in that the reason I don't often speak about the Australian property market in my podcast is somewhat as a relatively selfish reason in that I don't care too much about the property market or property investing. Now, don't take that as me saying that i think it's a bad investment or a bad you know thing to do with your money that's not the case at all but the point of the show is at least this show that i've created is to primarily focus on equity markets and economic news that is interesting and important but i suppose a it's a little bit hypocritical in the sense that the australian property market is also tied to those things especially the broader economic status of australia we have companies and even the market side of things. So we have companies trading on the ASX that are very much tied to the, the health of our property market, the obvious ones being the banks, especially CBA, Westpac, NAB, ANZ, the big ones. And then like stocks we just mentioned before, realestate.com.au, which has been a fantastic business to own over the years from an investor point of view. But also at, at a, at a macroeconomic point of view and uh, consumer behavior, point of view, our property market is also important in terms of its impact on confidence and and behavior. Generally speaking, there's this wealth effect that people feel more optimistic and sure about their position financially when the property market is strong. And you can see correlation with other you know big household purchases such as a brand new car. You can see the way that correlates in consumer behavior with the rising and the falling of the the overall Australian property market. And the Aussie property market has been on a bit of a tear lately. In fact, I would say it's probably a fair statement to make that if you time travel back to March, April 2020 and ask people, and when I say people, I mean anyone, just people like you and me or economists and housing market, industry experts, anyone you want. I, I think if you went to them and said, hey, where do you think the property market will be in 12 months? Where will it be you know, across the 2020 year and going into early 2021? I think it's fair to say that there'd be a fair bit of pessimism in the answers to those questions. In fact, I have the receipts. I have them right here. Do not go anywhere. It was It was actually the case last year, 2020. There was quite a few doom and gloom predictions about the Australian property market. The biggest lender in the country... CBA started, or they stated rather, a base case of an 11% fall in the property market, and a worst case scenario where we have extended lockdowns, you know, especially nationwide. The worst case scenario of 32% fall in the property market, and of course the headlines ran with the 32% number, proclaiming that the the you know the risks the property market could be a crash of a third. And I'm not just picking on that one. Westpac's baseline prediction at the time was 20%. So that's, that's their baseline. So it almost double the 11% baseline prediction of CBA. And that was around the April-May period of 2020. Uh, an economist that I've quoted here on the podcast before, Shane Oliver at AMP Capital, he said that you could see potentially a 20% drop specifically in the Sydney and Melbourne house prices. And that didn't happen. But now it's not to say that these people... And the banks were all wrong and don't trust them, all that kind of stuff. Not at all. But it shows just how unpredictable the last year or so has been and how unlike, very much unlike past economic downturns and recessions the last 12 months have been. And there was also, yeah, because there was plenty of indicators to suggest that the property market could get a lot worse. I mean, one of them can just be purely the unemployment rate. So there was the rising unemployment rate. We also spoke about just the, the sheer number of loans. Uh, so there was hundreds of thousands of loans across the nation that were more or less paused, so their payments were deferred. But the weirdness of this, of the recession we went through and just the, the overall downturn is that it was one where you have very specific industries that were, that were devastated. You had some industries and companies do just fine or surprisingly do fine. And some of them are better off because of 2020. So it's a really strange set of circumstances. Go back to that question I just posed before. Imagine you time travel back, you get to March, April around there last year in 2020 and you ask people where they think the Australian housing market will be in 12 months. My guess and a lot of professional opinion as well at the time as we just mentioned was pretty pessimistic. But the reality right now is we're in a moment where house prices are surging pretty significantly and the same people who may have been pessimistic 12 months ago are actually very optimistic on 2021 for the housing market. And furthermore, what's happening now is where we saw regional centres do quite well over the last 12 months and that especially comes off the back of people embracing the idea of working from home And even if they do have to commute to the office, maybe it's only one or two times a week. And so maybe the idea of having to commute in an hour or two hours from a regional centre to the capital, that's not as bad if you only have to do it one or two times a week. Those regional centres doing quite well from a housing perspective, a property price increase perspective, I should say, is now starting to get taken back over by the capital cities of Australia, which are picking up again pretty quickly. And sort of to highlight that point, There's this is a little segment here from the ABC on the 1st of April 2021. Over the month, Australian dwelling values increased 2.8%. That's the highest growth rate we've seen since October 1988, and it's pushed values 6.2% higher over the year. The Sydney market has regained its unenviable title as the front runner with a 3.7% gain in March. For the first time since the pandemic started, capital cities outperformed the regions. So there's a few things to touch on here. The video segment speaks to the monthly rise in property prices across capital centres. At a national level, that was 2.8%. And the biggest was Sydney, which had a 3.7% rise. And this is for the month of March, so just finished. Now, also noted is the median value for a property in Sydney... That is shown in the same data from CoreLogic sitting at $928,000. So median value for a property in Sydney. Now, we'll break out a little bit of crude maths here, but bear with me. So if you take the median house price in Sydney, $928,000, for the month of March, property prices increased 3.7%. 3.7% of that median price is about $34,000 just to slightly round it down there. So for someone saving towards said median Sydney property, there's certainly no way they could have saved enough in March, $34,000 to just keep up with the the property price growth that the city experienced there. Secondly, another point to touch on Relates to the recovery and the overall health of the housing market. And I don't just mean new buyers, but also existing mortgage holders. As you know, the number of actual loan deferrals across the country has fallen very significantly. There were APRA figures that were updated on the 31st of March, so it's pretty recent. And they give you a better sense of exactly how the market has improved in this regard, and also the number of loans that were you know, more or less put on ice which now have moved back to being serviced or in some cases they're partially serviced but at least starting to be serviced. So this here comes from APRA, the total amount of loans and this includes standard mortgages you know, for a house as well as SME loans or small business loans. The total amount that are currently being deferred as per APRA is now $14 billion in total and if you do recall last year, the figure was closer to about $260 billion at its peak and that was around April April to June period 2020. So as a share of the total amount of loans right now, that $14 billion figure, that's about 0.5% of all loans that are deferred. Now, the top three banks with the biggest share of these deferred loans as it stands right now is Westpac, which is slightly a little bit more than ANZ, who comes in second, and then CPA, the third most amount. So certainly, as the economy started to improve, you know, the job market started to improve. We t- touched on a episode recently where job ads were looking quite healthy, as you know, an indicator that there is a better, an increased demand for skills that's starting to pick back up. So I guess as this started to improve and people got back on their feet, so too did the housing market health and people's ability to make those repayments. Another interesting impact has been the government's home build scheme which was used to incentivize both renovations as well as new home building developments. In terms of its impact on approvals to build new homes, there has been some ABS data which is from the December quarter, so it's October to December 2020, and it shows a state-by-state breakdown on the increase in detached dwelling approvals. So this data, this latest data from the ABS, although of course I acknowledge it's a couple months old now, it's showing that the the number of appro- approvals for detached dwellings in that December quarter, it rose quite significantly in Queensland. It was up 51.2% in Queensland and that's compared to the prior period in 2019, so October to December 2019. Now, all states actually had a pretty good rise. The largest was actually Western Australia. It came in at 100, 111%. Uh, Tasmania was 51.9%. South Australia, 297 New South Wales, 309 And Victoria, 283 So that's the increase in the amount of approvals for new buildings. And the other bit about the home builder scheme, which I mentioned was the renovation side to it. And to qualify just for clarity, you had to be looking at renovations to the value of at least 150K up to 750K. And there's a there's a little bit here from a recent AFR article by Michael Bleby. He touches on this point, quote, the ABS figures show that the value of new approvals for domestic renovations and alterations rose in January and this is for an eighth straight month. Uh, with work approved over the 12 months to January at a record $9.3 billion. The frenzy of work which pushed the value of approvals in December alone up to a record $962 million has created shortages of up to two years for skilled tradespeople. Uh, that has certainly helped fuel some demand uh, and not, not, not just in renovations but also those looking to actually build brand new homes. And finally, another interesting point is that our property market's latest surge is actually not alone, I guess, on the global stage. There's some similar movements in comparable countries like Canada and metro areas such as Vancouver are seeing significant increases in property prices. I'm going to take this next part also from the AFR. It's an article by Timothy Moore on April 3rd. It's titled... Vancouver home sales and prices extend their surge. He notes, part of the reason for the sale and price surge is the resilience of Canada's economy. The Bank of Canada has been keen to keep interest rates low to avert any further negative impact from the pandemic. That part sounds pretty familiar to our own country's status. I feel like you could just substitute Australia and the RBA there and it'd be the, the same thing. It goes further in the article when it quotes from two people out of Oxford Economics, quote, Tony Stillo and Michael Davenport from Oxford Economics this week said the activity reflected buyer preferences, very limited supply and rock bottom mortgage rates. They note that they said they believe this is unsustainable and there's a growing risk that runaway prices are creating a bubble, but crash is unlikely unless there is a spike in mortgage rates or a major tightening of house policy or macroprudential or other. Now, if I jump on a, a different source, and this is not about Canada, this is back now about Australia again, this is a Bloomberg article by Matthew Burgess on April 1st. It says, quote, the rise in property prices has been fueled by record low borrowing rates and improved economic outlook and undersupply of new houses and government incentives. Kind of sounds almost identical to that Oxford economics analysis uh, regarding Vancouver there. So that's what I mean, this this trend also as economies have started to open back up and things have started to improve, especially in, like I said, a comparable nation like Canada to Australia. There are similar events occurring, say, compared to, say, Sydney versus Vancouver. Now, I think there's a couple takeaways here. You know, the, the kind of monthly surge that we saw in March, it's certainly not one that's sustainable, but the backdrop is one of, you know, incentives such as the home builder, but also our central bank stating that they believe it's unlikely that rates rise before 2021. Remember, they're not saying that they won't rise. They're saying that they don't anticipate it, which adds a little bit of wriggle room, which is a key key role for central bankers to always have a little bit of wriggle room in any statement that you make. It's practically a key, key skill requirement on the job ad. So that's certainly helping in terms of borrowing now if they're right and remember we've spoken about how the bond markets are betting that the RBA is not right but let's say hypothetically that they're right it's worth noting that uh, rates will or may rise from 2024 onwards and that's important to note right now because there's a fair bit of advertising and competition right now between the banks on two and three year fixed loans so it's important to note that if you're someone with those kind of loans there's a chance that after that two to three year fixed period and they are very low at the moment that when you come out, the central banks might be or might have already slightly increased rates and that's certainly going to impact the repayments that you're making because that's certainly going to have a an effect on the actual interest rate of your loan and and therefore the repayments that you have to make principal and interest back to the bank. The other thing that's being discussed at the moment is the, the likelihood on whether APRA steps in to curb this if it starts to get a bit too crazy, if you start to see too many months like the month of March. Now, this is not unprecedented. They have stepped in before several years ago, they stepped in regarding investment property purchases, trying to curb the amount of, uh, for example, interest-only loans. So it's definitely not something that hasn't happened in the past. I'm not sure what that would look like from APRA, but certainly be aware that that might be a next move that they make If they start to think that the property market gets a little bit too hot and maybe they might put restrictions on say high LVR loans. They might be requiring borrowers to increase the amount of the deposit that they have for, especially for higher loans. So just expect that potentially there might be some movement out of APRA regarding that. And again, especially if they think that it's getting a little bit too hot. But I think finally the the other thing to consider, and this is more of a behavioral point of view, because there's a lot of I mean, this is a big media thing because the media loves to talk about the property market, talking about whether it's booming, talking about whether it's a bubble and talking, talking about whether it's going to burst and all that kind of stuff. The, the thing here is not to get caught up in that crap and just if you're someone that's looking to buy a home, I mean, the, and I say this again as I self-admitted before that that's not something that I have done, but it's not good to get caught up in narratives about whether it's the right time to buy or you don't want to get caught up in the fomo if you're ready to buy a home and it's purely a long-term thing especially if you're financially secure to buy that home so think about you know yes i can make the repayments now but also think about you know hypothetical situations when when and if interest rates rise and how that would impact your discretionary income i would be thinking that the purchase of a home is just something that you should do when you're ready, and and sort of ignore the noise around the market being too hot or too cold or whatever it is. Don't let that don't let that any kind of fear of FOMO or something like that uh, drive you to make a decision that you otherwise would not have made. So that was a little bit about where our property market is at the moment. It will be interesting to see if APRA do make a move. It seems that they might, especially if it keeps up like this, but that's something we'll mention on the podcast in the future if it does happen. But thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode of the Market Polls podcast. Like I said, you can ask any question you want at marketpollspodcasts at gmail.com. Email them in there. If you want to leave a review or a rating, you can do that on your preferred podcast platform of choice. I know Apple Podcasts allow it, so if you want to flick a star rating or written review or both preferably both you can do that there but otherwise thanks for listening in enjoy the rest of your Easter long weekend my name is Dion and I will see you for episode 52 cheers